Well, we worship through music and we worship through song, and now we're going to worship through teaching. So let the worship continue. Amen. Amen. Um, two weeks ago, well, let's start three weeks ago. First Cross Life, Andy gave a short introduction to 1 John 2.6, which is our theme verse, which says, if we say that we abide in him, we must walk also in the sa- even the same manner as he walked. I'm going to get him memorized one of these days. Two weeks ago, we looked at the glory of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, how he is first in everything, especially his pre-incarnate glory. You guys remember that? His preeminence, his authority overall. Last week, we were blessed in a great lesson about humility. We looked at what happened when Christ was stripped of that pride. Same word Andy talked about, his majesty, when he was stripped of it, when he was clothed in humility and became man. For us, focusing perhaps more on his, on his humanity than his deity. Well, tonight we're going to look at the duplex of these natures, these two things together called his, um, his hypostatic union, both his deity and his humanity. And we're going to look at how that benefits us together. So we're going to try and tie it all three weeks in. Um, can you guys hear me okay? Good? I hope that we can help it, use that to help us deal with one of the most real one of the most challenging, one of the most damaging and destructive, the most damaging and destructive thing that we face, and that's sin. And the temptation that leads us to that. Um, we're going to cover a lot tonight, so I, I beg that you would stick with me through this. I beg that you'd really pay attention, that you'd focus in. And I know even now as we sit, our minds and our hearts are prone to wander. I was blessed by that, and I just, I know that's true. I mean, it is true in my life. Um, and because of that, I want to pray before we get started. So if you'd bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we need you. It is evident, Lord, it is clear. And if it is not, make it clear tonight. God, and I need you now. Father, fill me with your spirit that you'd be glorified tonight through the teaching of your word. God, that we wouldn't just come and go as we please, but we'd worship you now through teaching, Father, that we'd worship you as we leave. God, as we deal with your word, as we deal with the seriousness of sin and temptation, Lord, enlighten us to see, to know, to face this with reality, Lord, to take up arms against the devil, to flee from sexual immorality, Lord, to deal with this rightly. Father, I am... I'm so in need of you now. Lord, take your rightful place here tonight. Would you be high and lifted up, Father? That is our prayer, Lord, and that you would make us more like Christ tonight, even as we learn, even as we sing again, Lord, make us more like your Son. You know, that's why you've saved us, Lord. Make us more like your Son, we pray. We ask it through him. That's why we can pray, Father. Amen. Well, John Knox, John Knox, a great reformer, said, Now after many battles I find nothing in me but vanity and corruption. For in quietness I am negligent, in trouble impatient, tending to desperation, pride and ambition assault me on one part, coveted, covetedness and malice trouble me on the other. Briefly, O Lord, the afflictions of the flesh do almost suppress the operation of thy spirit. Has anyone ever felt like that? Just downcast in soul. 
overwhelmed with the temptation. After many battles, I find nothing in me but vanity and corruption. I feel like that at times. We're going to talk about why that feeling's there, what we do about that, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. Let me tell you first what the Bible says about temptation. That's our focus, as you can see on your sheets. Temptation, the battle. Temptation does not come from God. Instead, it comes from our lusts. But God does permit it as a trial of faith and dedication. The devil is the author of it and is able to renew it. It can cause or it can arise through poverty or prosperity. Worldly glory is often its catalyst. Its goal is to cause distrust in God's providence, presume upon him, worship Satan, and is only strengthened by the perversion of God's word. Christ endured it from the devil, from the wicked, and resisted it with the word of God. By being under it, he sympathizes with others who endure it and is able to help them, even by interceding for us. It is never greater than a believer can endure, and God will be pleased to deliver us in due time. So what better place to look tonight to deal with temptation than to our Lord Jesus Christ? So if you'd grab a Bible, if you have one, if you'd open it up to Matthew 4. I'll read from the text there. Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after He had fasted forty days and forty nights, He then became hungry. And the tempter came to Him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put, your, not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels, became, or angels came and began to minister to him. What does it mean when it says Jesus was led into the Spirit by the wilderness? You ever wonder that? What went on right before this? Context. Matthew 3, it's baptism, right? Good. So Luke says, um, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led around in the Spirit, or by the Spirit in the wilderness. Mark says, immediately, Mark 1, verse 12 says, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. So this is right after his baptism, right after he's been um, made public, right after the Lord has opened up the heavens, blessed him. Um, Keep that in mind. So his obedience to the Spirit compelled him to go out into the wilderness. So what does this mean? Does it mean that God tempted him? Well, it doesn't. We know that God doesn't tempt anyone, right? James 1, 13-15 says, Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when the lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So, did God tempt Jesus? No. Did God allow him to be tempted? Yes. 
It's really, really important. So what happens in our temptation is we go, God, why are you doing this? Why are you tempting me like this? Right? You ever do that? Not God. But as we will see, it was necessary for Christ to be tempted. Verse 2, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And when I first read this, I went, really, Matthew? Is this necessary to include? I, I think, I don't eat for 30 minutes and I get hungry. Jesus fasts for 40 days and says he's hungry. Luke 4.2 says, For 40 days being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. He was hungry. Why did he include this? Why did the Spirit inspire Matthew and Luke to write this? Well, I think it's because they wanted us to see that Jesus was most susceptible now. When are we most susceptible to sin? When we're happy-go-lucky, when we got our bellies full? When we're hungry. When we're hungry, lonely, or tired, like your sheet says. Jesus was as susceptible now as he ever would be. It's important to understand that this temptation was absolutely legitimate. Yes, Jesus was God, but he was also man. And he didn't rely on his deity to, to resist the devil. We'll see that he relied on something quite different. Jesus was all three here. He was hungry, lonely, and tired, not the way you want to approach the devil. The tempter, verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. This was the first temptation, the lust of the flesh. If you've been without food for any significant amount of time, you can only imagine what this would be like. But there's more to it than just being hungry, isn't there? Satan's not just saying, Jesus, fill your belly up. Well, Christ could have done this while he was not stripped of his powers. He was being obedient to his Father while he was on earth. He would only use his deity. He would only use his power in obedience to the Lord, that the Lord might be glorified. This was not to satisfy his own means. This was not to to turn bread to stones. This was to glorify the Lord. He would not do this. To obey Satan here would mean to disobey God. You can't ever have one without the other. You realize that? Watch how Jesus responds. Verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He pulls directly from Scripture. This is the key here. He applies it properly and uses it to disrupt or put away the lie whispered by Satan. The Scriptures from Deuteronomy 8.3. It's used to show the Israelites in Deuteronomy wandering in the wilderness humility and priority. You will not live by bread alone, but by every word. God provided food for them in the form of man, and he would likewise provide food for Jesus, but only in due time. For now, God's word was enough. Verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Verse 6, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. stone." Satan uses Jesus' tactic here, doesn't he? Satan is clever. He's the great deceiver, Scripture says. He quotes from Psalms 91.11, but he twists it around a little bit. Let me tell you, this is why it is so, so important that you know God's Word. So that you can see when someone does this. So that you can see when the devil does this. Look, how often has a little twist here and a little twist there contributed to some of the greatest heresies down through history? Is this not what the cults do? Mormons would say that this is an interaction between Christ and Satan who are brothers. You realize that? Jehovah Witness would strip Christ of his deity here and say that he was just a mere man. 
little twist here and a little twist there. That's what Satan does, but Jesus spots this. Satan tempts in two ways. One, he says, God doesn't know what he's doing. And two, he says, does God really want your best? Verse 7, Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus again goes right to Scripture. He takes out the sword of the Spirit. He quotes this time from Deuteronomy 6.16, where the Lord Amasa had the Israelites demanding for water. The Israelites were rather demanding water from Moses when there was none, and they were testing the Lord's faithfulness. There's no reason, or there is, excuse me, there is a reason that these two are correlated. There's a reason Jesus keeps going back to Deuteronomy. He wants you to see something. We'll get to it in just a little bit. Verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Verse 9, And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. It just got real serious, didn't it? As if it wasn't serious enough before. Jesus is tempted finally by the lust of the eyes. Satan has full right to offer this. Did you know that? He's called the prince of the world in John 12, 21. And John 14, 30. And 1 John 5, 19 says he has the world lying in his power. And he says, Jesus, here it is. Take it. What is he doing here? He's essentially offering Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, a shortcut. He says, Jesus, if you just skip the cross, if you skip everything else, just skip it, you can have it all right now. Revelations 15, or excuse me, 11, 15 says he will come again, and he will reign on high, but he's got work to do first. Satan says, skip it. Satan ever offer you shortcuts? Think about it. I don't have enough guts to go talk to this person, so I'm just, just instead of praying, instead of building up courage, I'll take a little liquid courage, throw a shot back. I don't have time to study for this test, Lord. I've been busy with your work. If I could just copy this homework a little bit. Or worse yet, sex isn't really that good inside of marriage. It's just, what's the big deal? Take a shortcut. Bypass. Come on, get real. Does God really know what he's talking about? Does he really want your best? Well, Christ has had enough. He says to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Christ paraphrases Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14. Satan had no choice to obey him except to obey him, and he left. Listen to what Matthew Henry says here. Satan's price is always immeasurably more then he leads us to believe, and what he gives is always immeasurably less than he promises. For Jesus to have given this into this third temptation would have brought the same ultimate result as having succumbed to either of the other two. He would have disqualified himself not only as king, but also as savior. The statement of those who mocked at the foot of the cross would have been reversed. He saved himself, others he cannot save. Matthew 27, 42. Instead of redeeming the world, he would have joined the world. Instead of inheriting the world, he would have lost the world. The Christ would have played the Antichrist. The Lamb would have become the beast. Do you see what would have happened here? Do you see what was at risk? This isn't some lollygag in the park with Christ, is it? The world is at stake here. Ultimately, your salvation, the cross, the payment is at stake here. 
Verse 11, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Thus Satan's twisting of Scripture was fulfilled in its proper time. And while the specifics aren't given here, I'd like to believe, or I, I believe that angels came and ministered to him much in the same way as they did to Elijah. They brought him food. They brought him comfort. Perhaps because he was king of the universe, they worshipped him. They ministered to him. Luke 4.13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him till an opportune time. Satan leaves until an opportune time. That is what he does, and that is exactly what will happen with you and I. You will battle the flesh and your devil here tonight. You'll battle the world here tonight, but you're in good company sitting in these chairs, aren't you? I don't believe you're as susceptible as you sit in this room tonight as soon as you leave. Satan leaves until an opportune time, and he will do the same, brothers and sisters, with you and I. So, in light of this, what is, it, what is in here for us? Well, there's lots. There's much too, way too much to go over tonight, but what can we gain? The question is for you, how seriously do you take temptation and sin? How seriously do you take temptation and sin? The two were separated for a reason. Jesus obviously didn't sin when he was in temptation. Temptation itself was not a sin. But how seriously do you take this? Do you take this as seriously as Christ did? Do you take this as seriously as you should? A man named Walsingham took this from a book called Advice for Young Men written by John Charles Ryle. says, let me give you some background. He's being scrutinized because he was too... Uh, too melancholy, too low, too pitiful, too serious. He says, I am serious, for all are serious round about me. God is serious in observing us. Christ is serious in interceding for us. The Spirit is serious in striving with us. The truths of God are serious. Our spiritual enemies are serious in their endeavors to ruin us. Poor lost sinners are serious in hell. And why should not you and I be serious too? I'm not talking about some monkish slavery, sobriety, or some melancholy attitude that characterizes our entire life at all. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about looking at this in light of some urgency in your life. How often do we skip over the precious portions of Scripture without any urgency, without taking this stuff seriously? And I urge you, as we go through these points, to take this seriously, to take your sin seriously. As, some, as soon as some of you guys feel conviction, you just write it off. Oh, Lord, I, I don't, that's scary. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with the seriousness of sin. I'd rather bypass. I'd rather go play a game. I'd rather think about something else. Take some time tonight as we go through this to think seriously about this. To think soberly about this. Again, I'm not telling you that you live your life with a big frown on your face. That's not what Christianity is about. But I am saying, look at how seriously Jesus takes this. So what did Jesus do? What would He do? And what does He give us to do? We're going to look at five ways. Five things. The first is fight. We are to use the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6, 1-17. through 17. Here's how we deal with the schemes of the devil. We take out the sword of the Spirit. We don't sit there and argue. We do not run. We gird ourselves with the very armor of the Lord. And we defer to the power of God. 
and not wage our own war, but go to God. Scripture often refers to this life as a war. The sword referred to here is a small, precise one, not that of a large broadsword. Keep that in mind. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 6. Quickly go there. Starting in verse... uh, Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Specifically, the sword of the Spirit tonight. Again, what I said is this isn't just some random sword slashing around, some huge sword. The word here in Greek is referred to as small, six to... 18 inches, a precise one. One that recognizes the scripture. So when you're tempted to be angry at someone, you don't go, well, John 3.16 says, but you pull out a verse on anger and you go, you apply it to the situation. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? The question is, will you arm yourself with it? Psalms 119. How does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. It goes on to say, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what we do, men and women, is hide his word in our heart that we might pull it out. Okay, the second one. There are times where we don't stand up and fight against something. There are times where Scripture tells us to flee, to get out. 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20 says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We're not told to play or dally in sin, especially sin of this type. Matthew Henry says, the soul that deliberates is almost overcome. Men or women, what do you do when you find yourself lying next to your girlfriend trying to fight your desires? What do you do then? How do you fight that? Here's how you fight it. You don't put yourself in that circumstance in the first place. You flee from sexual immorality. Not even a hint, it says. Not even a hint. You flee. You run. You take up arms against the devil and you flee from sexual immorality. Is that clear? Okay. Quickly, I want to compare David in 2 Samuel 11. Um... And Joseph in Genesis 39. Now you guys all know the story of David in 2 Samuel, don't you? It's one of the most widely taught. When I say David, it's probably what comes to mind. What happened? He fell into sin with Bathsheba. Verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11 says, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the king's house, the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And you know where it goes from here, don't you? Don't you? But we don't even have to finish because this is enough. David could have done two things here. He could have gone downstairs. He could have repented. He could have fleen.
from this temptation, but he didn't. And as you saw, the results were disastrous. Disastrous. Okay, we often reflect on that, but let's look at a positive. Joseph in Genesis 39, verses 6 through 11. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself, this is Potiphar, with anything except for the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. He's a handsome, he's a good-looking guy. And well, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in the house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against the Lord? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties. Joseph is just going about his duties and none of the household servants was inside. Bad situation. What happens? No one's around and she grabs him by the cloak and says, come to bed with me, Joseph. Come to bed with me. Come lie with me. And what's he do? He sits and deliberates and he goes, well, I could do this or I could do... I don't know. Should I? I gotta weigh my options. Give me. No, he sheds his coat and he runs. I mean, he hightails it out of there. The exact opposite of David. And friends, this is exactly what we should do. At the appearance of sexual immorality, we should run for our lives, just like Joseph did. Because some of you think you're strong in this, and you're not. You're not. I don't need to know you individually. I know myself well enough to say that you're not. And you run when you come across this flea. The third is fellowship. Men and women, we are not meant to walk this walk alone. It would be silly to suggest that temptation is to be a showdown with you alone. Proverbs 1.10 says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Look at the early church's model in Acts 2.42. What's it say? You guys know the scripture. They were constantly devoting themselves to the apostles, teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This was the early church, and they knew that they had to be in fellowship. If they were going to fight against the religion of the day, if they were going to fight against devil, if they were going to fight against sin, they had to be together. Hebrews 10, 23-25, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another on towards love and good deeds. Listen, not forsaking our own assembling together is, is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't forsake the meeting together, as is the habit of some. There is stuff throughout the course of this semester that will beg for your temptation, or excuse me, for your attention. Some of it good stuff. And this isn't a pitch for cross life. This isn't a pitch for anything except for fellowship in the body of Christ. Do not forsake the sem- assembling together, as is the habit of some but encourage you another, one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Get together, fellowship, build one another up in the faith with praying, with teaching, with singing. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. This is not just a Sunday-Friday thing. Remember what I said the first week? I cannot tell how you are doing Monday through Thursday. I wish I could. I wish I could see more of you during that time, but I just can't. 
And so are you fellowshipping? Are you in regular contact with other believers? Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character, but good fellowship builds you up in the strength of Christ. Be in a fellowship group. Be meeting with other believers. It's too difficult to do it on your own. Fourth, freedom. Freedom. I wouldn't want to approach this topic without touching this. Observe and understand the line between temptation and sin. Some of you, and be careful in saying this, but some of you have false guilt. And sometimes I do too. We mix up temptation and sin. Instead of being joyful that the Lord has delivered us from a temptation, we lament the fact that we're even tempted. You ever do that? So instead of going, Lord, thank you that you've corrected my eyes. Lord, thank you that you've corrected my attitude. We go, Lord, I'm just so wicked. That's true. But praise the Lord. Take that opportunity to praise the Lord that he delivered you, that you took out the sword of the Spirit to fight up arms against the devil, or you fleed from sexual immorality, or you got in good fellowship. Galatians 5.1, speaking specifically about slavery to the law, for it was for, it was for freedom Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again to the yoke of slavery. Do not let Satan beat you up unnecessarily. He will try to do that enough legitimately already. We are free from the power and penalty of sin, as Aaron prayed earlier. We are free. Someday, praise the Lord, we'll be free from the presence. But while we're here, we've got to fight, take up arms, battle. Dr. Wayne Mack in How to Say No to Temptation. Temptation becomes sin when we stop struggling against it, when we cooperate with it and yield to the thought and desire for it, and when we allow ourselves to be carried away and enticed. Do you see the difference? between temptation and sin. Temptation becomes sin when we stop struggling against it. Rejoice. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, when the, when the Word floods your mind. When, you, when temptation arises and you go, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that I abstain from sexual immorality, that I know how to possess my own body in sanctification and honor, that I flee from youthful lusts and pursue faith, love, peace, but those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, we draw these things from our memory, from the word, for treasured up in our hearts, and we fight. Or we flee. Take, I bet Joseph went out and he was sweating bullets, but I better rejoice that the Lord would give him strength and grace to deliver him from that. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, some of you have some serious thinking to do tonight, some serious reflection. You guys ever been to someone's house who lives next to an airport? or next to a railroad and have dinner at their place? What is that like? <laughs> You're sitting there and trying to eat dinner, and this sounds like this B-42's landing, and the dinner plate was shaking like this. <laughs> and you're going, what's going on? Are we getting attacked? And they don't even notice, do they? What's the big deal? It's just another day in the life. Where you're sitting there trying to have lunch, and this railroad comes, a train comes, <laughs> They don't even notice. It's like they blend it out. And we laugh, but that is exactly what some of you do with sin. You become so desensitized to it that it happens and you just go, yeah, yeah, there it is again. It's coming in like a B-42 and you go, eh, it's just sin. Just going to do it again later probably. Is that not true? Some of you are not winning at this. 
some of you are losing, and it could be for any number of things. Maybe you're too lazy to fight or you become too desensitized to your sin. To that I say like James does, let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Be broken and repent of this. Take your sin seriously tonight. Rise up in the strength of the Lord and pursue righteousness, Christ-likeness. Ask the Lord to show you your sin and be faithful that He will trust, or be faithful and trust Him that He will forgive you for it. Take your sin seriously. Rejoice when He delivers you from temptation. But when you fall, take that seriously. Don't become desensitized like the world to your sin. The reason you fall into temptation, Dr. Wayne Mack says, um, excuse me, says you are the reason you fall into temptation. The problem is your desires. And what this means is that if you're going to overcome temptations, you need to stop blaming everyone else for your sin and deal with your heart. Why has hit me hard? How often can we point to circumstances around us and go, well, I just, man, if I just, man, I, well, it's not really my fault. Deal with it yourself. Go to your heart and realize that the problem isn't with your friends. It lies inside of you. Deal with your sin. Think back to Matthew 4. And it's stark parallels. One, to the Israelites in the desert. The Israelites failed again and again and again. And then think also to the Garden of Eden. What happened there? Satan came and he said, did he really say no fruit? Is that what he really meant? Does God really want his best for you? Is that what's really going on? There is hope in this, and I believe there's a beautiful reason that Jesus gave us Matthew 4, that that he put that in there, that that was recorded for our good. I want you to think about it in light of this. Barnes says, When the first Adam was created, he was subjected to the temptation of the devil, and he fell and involved the, the race in ruin. It was not improper that the second Adam, the redeemer of the race, should be subjected to temptation in order that it might be seen that there was no power that could alienate him from God, that there was a kind and a degree of holiness which no art or power could estrange from allegiance. It was necessary that Christ went through this. And this is a beautiful parallel. Adam and Eve fall in the garden. As a result, the entire human race and the earth indeed is damned. It was necessary for the second Adam, that is of Christ, to come and succeed in temptation. Romans 5, 12-21 speaks of the comparison between the first Adam and the last, who is none other than that of Christ. Verse 17, For if by the trespasses of one man, this is Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, condemnation for all men came, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. Do you see the contrast here? For just as through the disobedience of that one man many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man many will be made righteous. The law was added so that trespasses may increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace may reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then, Paul says? What what does this mean? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. By no means. Paul uses the strongest language he can. No, never. That's not what it means. We died to sin. How then can we live any longer? 
How then can we live in it any longer? Do you not know? Or do you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life if we have been united with him like this in his death. We will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin may be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. This is so, so, so important. All too often I see Christians, including myself, go, I just, I'm just enslaved to this. I just can't get out of it. In Romans, Paul says, through the Spirit in Romans, no, you've been set free. Yes, you struggle. Yes, you do what you don't want to do. But you have been set free. You have died to sin, therefore live in it no longer. You have been raised with Christ. Raised up that you might be free from sin. Set free. Where sin abounds, therefore grace abounds. But because that sin abounds, or because that grace abounds, should we sin? May it never be. May it never be so in your life or in mine. The fifth one is follow. Walk as He walked. Walk as Jesus did. The Bible is loud on temptation. It is not silent. We don't have time to possibly even touch, even scratch the surface about what it says on temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, Though that no temptation has seized you, except for what is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but, he, when the te- but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. My friend texted me this today. I already had this in here, but this is... We've got to realize this. There's no temptation that will seize us except for what someone else has already gone through. There's nothing new under the sun in terms of lots of things, and one of those is temptation. Sometimes I get so, so sorry for Lord, why did... This isn't something that many other people have gone through. And God is faithful. He will provide a way out. Hebrews 4.15, follow Him. For we did not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet is without sin. Aren't you glad that Jesus was tempted? Hebrews 2.18 For since He Himself was tempted, and that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Aren't you glad that Jesus suffered? Aren't you glad that He was tempted? He is able to sympathize with our weakness in this. Jesus doesn't just go, oh, I know what that's like. He went through this. He really did. Hebrews 12.2 Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Walk like Jesus. All too often we sit here and just stare at our temptation and go, man, this is awful. Take your eyes off the temptation and Fix them on Christ Jesus that we may walk as He walked. Matthew Henry said, Let not any abuse of Scripture by Satan or by men abate our esteem or cause us to abandon its use, but let us study it still, seek to know it, and seek our defense from it in all kinds of assaults. Let this word dwell richly in us, for it is our life, our victorious Redeemer, conquered not for Himself only, but for us also. Walk like Christ did. And resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Flee from temptation. 
of the flesh and from, from immorality. Do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some, but instead engage in fellowship. Rejoice, rejoice in the freedom and victory over temptation and take time to thank the Lord for that. Instead of lamenting, take time to thank the Lord for His deliverance. Finally, follow Christ. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. I want you guys to think about this. Take some time to sit and think. Think about temptation and ask yourself, do I take this sin seriously? Because Jesus took it seriously. And you can bet, you can bet that the devil takes it seriously. So do you take it seriously? Take some time to think about that. We'll sing and then I'll close this. Um, man, Paul Washer told me that you can tell whether it's from Satan or from God. One of the ways you can do that is to tell whether there's hope in it. Whether there's light in it and whether there's forgiveness in it. And if you're feeling convicted, if you're beat up, and if you see your sin, then praise God. May the Holy Spirit continue to work, but do not stay there. Go and bring it before the throne and realize that Jesus did pay it all. That He can make your sin as far as the east is from the west. Now some of you in here will not be able to resist temptation because you have not been washed in the blood. Because you have not been redeemed. Because you have not been saved. I just, i got to believe that in a group like this, there's some of you out here who are struggling with temptation because you do not have the power of the Holy Spirit in you to resist it. And so instead of fighting, submit to the Lord. That is your first step. You have a cancer of sin that is only curable by the blood of the Lamb. Realize that. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. Now, if you are washed in the blood, if you are saved tonight, take heart. Second Peter 2.9 says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the righteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Unrighteous, excuse me. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. So, if you have not been saved, repent and believe. Be delivered. Be saved. If you have, know that the Lord knows how to rescue you from temptation. Go to Him. If you're heavy laden, go. We throw around that verse so often. But if you are heavy laden, not by your schoolwork, not by your girlfriend or boyfriend, if you're heavy laden with sin, go. That He may ease your yoke. For His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Keep watching and praying. Jesus says that you may not come into temptation for the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think of this so often. I want so badly to follow hard after the Lord. I do. And my spirit is willing. Not always, but often. But my flesh is weak. And so practice what we've learned tonight. Take up arms. Fight against the devil. Raise up. Flee from sexual immorality. Be in good fellowship. Do not do this alone. Realize the freedom that we have in Christ. And follow after Him. Take your eyes off yourself and place them on Christ. Men and women, sin crouches at the door. It's like God said so long ago. Sin crouches at the door and its desire is for you. And when you leave here tonight, 
It will not get any easier. It will not. God meant this for evil, or Satan meant this for evil, but God can use it for good. Amen? So flee from sexual immorality. Confess your sin to God. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praises to graven images. May he get glory tonight. As you confess your sins, as you repent before him, as you call on the promise of Scripture, if you confess before, if you are faithful to confess your sin before me, faithful, righteous to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So run to Christ, sinners, and repent. And if you're heavy laden, praise of God. Don't leave here tonight until you get that cancer figured out. Until you see your sin and repent of it. Does that make sense? Guys, this is crucial. 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 Sin crouches at the door. Do not leave here without being prepared. Rise up. Rise up and take hope. And light up. Let's sing Jesus paid it all one more time. Realize that Jesus did pay it all. Even when we fall into sin from that temptation, rejoice and be glad. See the light. See the hope. Do not let Satan trick you into believing that all is lost. But rise up and believe that Jesus paid it all.